with Matt and Hillary. And I'm Matt. And, yeah, and I'm Hillary. And uh, this is our uh, The the Kim Stanley Robinson read-along podcast, where yeah. uh, everybody reads some chunk of, <laughs> of a novel or some short stories, and then uh, Matt and I talk about it. Yeah, that's right. And then, <laughs> you, that right? <laughs> and then you listen to it. So you, re- you, you read it, and then... Talk. What is that? Well, they listen to us talk. Yeah, you listen to us talk. Um, and uh, this time around, we're reading. We're we're in our we're we're in the Martians uh, mm-hmm. uh, collection of short stories, and we're going to be doing today talking about Arthur Sternbach brings the curveball to Mars, mm-hmm. salt and fresh, the Constitution of Mars, and some. Work notes. What is it called? Some work notes and commentary on the Constitution by Charlotte Dorsa Brevia. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. 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 We're happy to be uh, have a chance again to talk about the Constitution of Mars. That's right. Your favorite thing. Uh, and I think that we should. I think we should disclose that we're recording this episode on a new uh, platform medium. Yeah. I feel like um, we have more anxiety about this than our um, right, listeners do, but I don't care. yeah. But it's weird. It will. Ex- this is the first time that we've done one of these where we actually can't see each other; we can only hear each other. That's right. So we're going to be using a whole different set of cues to know when to shut up. In other words, we're just going to talk over each other in increasingly loud voices. <laughs> yeah. And Hillary might sound like she's in a fishbowl more than she normally does, or that, or I might be sounding like I'm in a fishbowl. I don't know how I sound. I mean, you um, sound normal, honestly. You're what? You sound normal. Okay. Yeah. Um, I hope you sound normal because I don't know. Okay. Anyway, we, okay. <laughs> our audience is the best audience in all of podcasting, and they um, they uh, are very forgiving about all of our audio quality issues. They're very tolerant, honestly. Yeah. Very tolerant. So we we don't need to be be worried about it so much. Um, uh, so Matt, I went back to teaching this week. My, oh, did you? Back in, yeah, back. We're back in session. Uh, my the master's program that I run has uh, 140 students in it this year, which is kind of a lot. That's an enormous amount. Do they? They don't all fit in that hall in that room that you lecture in. Then oh, they they do all fit in the lecture room, but at the beginning of lecture, uh, somebody has to say, "Can you guys please move into the middle because you can't leave empty seats because there's no room for that." So it's it's awkward. Right. Uh, and there's no way once they're in, it's very very difficult to climb over people into the middle. Yes, it's, um, exactly. you know, like it's it's an old old. It's when was that built? Like probably over a hundred years ago. That room or something like that. So oh yeah, I would guess. Not forgiving for in those seats are not forgiving, and the the rows are not forgiving either. 
No, it's like very tightly packed. I mean, it's a kind of beautiful room if you have like fantasies about academia being like, um, I don't know. Wood, wood paneled. Thing. Yeah, if you have wood paneled academic fantasies, it's a beautiful room. Uh, but yeah, it's super crowded. It gets really hot in there with all those bodies. Um, yep. But I did have a student come up to me and tell me he's a fan of the podcast. Oh, man. So he's heard many times you say, don't go to grad school. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which, you know, just proves something that I frequently think about, you know, in one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing is advising students. And mm-hmm. I kind of think over the years that like advising is really is not a scene of the transmission of content of any kind. It's like, mm-hmm. it's just like an affective interaction of some kind. Mm-hmm. Because like you can say anything to somebody and they're not going to, you know, take your advice or like believe it or think that it's true until, no. you know, like sometimes years later, students will email me and be like, "That you were so right in what you said. And then they'll say that I said yeah. something and I'll think, I don't think I ever said that thing. Yeah. But, yeah. But anyway, no. you know, good. good I, to know we have fan, We have fans, Matt. Fans. My. Yeah, we do have fans. <clears throat> we do. My my experience of advising, of being an advisor and of being advised, well, I, I, I know that I've only ever given good advice. Um, that's, uh, that's for damn sure. <laughs> but whether whether they take it or not is, you know, that's their problem. But I also know that I only take bad advice. And if it's good <laughs> advice, I will not take it. And And... I only, you only know that it was good advice a year or two after that you said, I really should have done that. And you only know it's bad advice a year or two after when you say, I really should have ignored that person who told me to do that. But I have a skill of only taking bad advice and uh, it's worked, it's worked out really well for me so far. I mean, I do feel like one of my strengths as an advisor is that I personally am really resistant to being advised. You know, I just, yeah, I feel like yeah. those are scenes in which I'm always like, you don't know me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and something about that, I think, because I, you know, I think actually in some serious way, I do think that that makes me more able to like, actually listen to what my students want and try to talk with them about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, and also when I think about like my graduate school time, like the amount of advice I got from my advisors was, uh, you know, minimal, Mm -hmm. minimal. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I didn't listen to it anyway. Well, I love the advice where it's, you go to one person, they tell you one thing, you go to the other person, they tell you the exact opposite. And you're like, cool, great. And then you go to a third person and you say, this person told me this, this person told me that. And then the third person will say, you know, well, what do you think? Or we'll tell you something completely different or we'll just, you know, pass you a blunt or something like that. And then <laughs> at yeah. that point you stop caring and just get on with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, well, I, uh, I, what have I been doing? I've, I've been doing a lot of stuff, but uh, probably none of it's actually worth talking about. Um, but I, yesterday I went to an amazing organic farmers and growers fair up in um, central Maine, which was lovely. And I won't get into it. It was really great. It was a hot day. So I was exhausted by the time we got back. And also we spent more time in the car than we did actually like walking around the fairgrounds. 
but I did have the best falafel I've ever had up there. It was amazing. That's worth a what drive. Else have I, that was worth a drive. What else have I done? I mean, I've watched a bunch of stuff, like just things. I watched this show and I was telling you about it uh, years and years on HBO, which is like a near future sort of ap- apocalyptic show. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting, but also ultimately, I think, not very good in terms of its representation of a possible future. And also like it's addressed to a and construction of a very specific HBO centric audience uh, with its own kind of ideas about what's good and bad. Um, I'm kind of curious to see it, but I have to say that your account of the show made me, you know, less curious than I had been before. So it's just a, so in some ways it sounds like a show that's just like invested in like taking up kind of SF ish tropes in order to like, just let us uh, think about like what families are like or what love is or whatever. Yeah. It's very much family centric. Um, and like, but it, but it does, I mean like the, 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 the kind of overall arc of the story is that um, Emma Thompson plays this basically neo-fascist Trumpian um, styled um, politician who sort of comes out of nowhere and become ends up being prime minister and creates a new political party and invoke and sort of like gives rise to all these kind of fascist movements and gradually and like subtly it takes over their everyday lives so that mm. there are you know there are like, like these concentration camps uh de facto concentration camps that are hidden from public view that um where like immigrants and homeless people are housed and sort of um just kind of left to kind of die and but and of course this intersects with the family in various ways and there's various um stresses put on the family because of certain political economic and social movements um, and, and manifest and like sort of phenomena that, that occur. Um, but through it all, the family sort of is able to persist and evolve and incorporate sort of new people into it and stuff like that. I mean, the worst part was that, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody else, but, um, the way that like, um, people are recuperated through the family structure Uh, let's just say that is, to my mind, highly problematic. Uh, and um, uh, from speaking as like a uh, diehard socialist, completely bullshit. But, uh, <laughs> but that's just me. That's just one man's uh, opinion. Just you. That's just just one man's opinion. I also saw the new Fast and Furious movie, which was delightful. The one where uh, Dwayne Johnson and uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Jason, Jason Statham. Jason Statham, like, run around together and have some good times. They beat up Idris Elba, who is also a black cyborg. Um, <laughs> oh my god! And uh, he is. Uh, good to know Idris that's on everyone's mind. Sorry, <laughs> I said good to know that's what's on everybody's mind right now. Yeah, black cyborgs—they're the future. Um, he is, uh, he's kind of part of a, um, they, you know, they borrow fast and furious. What's great about it is it's a hybrid film series. So it like just steals from every other big blockbuster, um, 
franchise. So it's both the Avengers and the Transformers and James Bond and Born Identity and everything else you can think of all rolled into one. And so the plot of this, of course, is they have to save the world because there's a virus that's going to wipe out all of humanity in order to pave the way for the future human, which will be, which Idris Elba is like a prototype of, and they're all going to have cybernetic enhancements and (laughs) stuff like that. Um, It was fun. (laughs) I mean, it sounds fun. I mean, would a future in which we were all Idris Elba be so bad? It wouldn't be I actually. Ask I ask you. It's a, it's a future I dream about every day. <laughs> Me too. Speaking of the future, uh huh. Um, did you know that there's going to be baseball in the future? Uh, well, I know that now. Are we? Is that a transition? Are we making a transition? I don't know what you're talking about. I just am naturally kind of. <laughs> For me, the conversation is just naturally turning to this other thing I read, which was a short story called Arthur Sternbach Brings the Curveball to Mars. Uh, this is an extremely charming story. Well, I, I'm a huge baseball fan, so this is automatically one of my top favorite things I've ever read from Ken Stanley Robinson. Um, you know that uh, my dad was a high school baseball coach, or he, you know, he was an elementary school teacher, but he coached baseball after. Um, after school. And he also like was, uh, when he was like a 18 year old or something was a semi-pro baseball player. So I, I grew up, uh, watching a lot of baseball with my dad. And I, I have to say this story just filled me with a kind of nostalgic missing of him and the kind of like, you know, the love of that game. Um, and I think my dad would have liked that story a lot. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, and I was thinking about like, I wonder if this story has been anthologized in other like collections of baseball stories because it's a great baseball story, actually. Yeah. It's just a really yeah. wonderful baseball story. Yeah, I mean like a classic um, baseball story that's like centered around like basically being on a shitty team who that can't quite get it together and then just does kind of get it together long enough yeah. to win a game. <laughs> win. Win the championship. They don't just win a game. They win the whole win championship. The championship. Yeah. On Mars. It has um, all the great things that we've come to expect from descriptions of Mars uh, in terms of like the colors that you see and also like the sense of scale and proportion um, uh, and like the manipulation that or the like the different things that just gravity makes possible on Mars, um, and makes not necessarily, not even possible, but like necessary mm-hmm. so that like the dimensions of the ballpark itself are, in, are crazy. My team's ballpark, it was 900 feet to dead center, 700 down the lines standing at the plate. The outfield fence was like a little green line off in the distance under a purple sky, pretty near the horizon itself. What I'm telling you is that the baseball diamond about covered the entire visible world. It was so great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is really fantastic. Um, and so of course we're, we're here with Arthur Sternbach, who we met, um, uh, in Green Mars climbing, I mean, in the right. story of Green Mars, uh, climbing up Olympus Mons. Um, and, uh, I, one of the things that I really love about this story, I mean, besides the characterization of, uh, Gregor, the kind of like sullen slash nerdy slash intensely awkward teenager, um, who's on the team mm-hmm. 
learns how to, or has a natural curveball, and so uh, Arthur convinces the team to let uh, Gregor pitch. I mean, I love his mm-hmm. characterization. I feel like it captures very well a kind of like teenager who is both like, you know, maybe sort of resistant to you as an adult, but but also just like so awkward that he can't even really communicate yeah. that resistance. But one of the things that I loved in the story is how the kind of, um, you know, Arthur hasn't played baseball for a while, but because he is an American, and I feel like this is one of the first, I mean, I, I, you know, this happens a bit, I guess, when, um, when art gets to Mars in the Mars trilogy, but Mm -hmm. this is one of the first stories where we get this kind of, you know, the idea of the American on Mars. I mean, that's there and that's there in Green Mars, in the novella Green Mars 2, right? Yeah, right. But I, I love how he hasn't played baseball for a while, although he was a big baseball player in high school, but he's sort of expected to be a good baseball player by virtue of being an American. But mm-hmm. also all of his kind of like both the way in which he thinks about and imagines the game, but also all of the language that he uses and what he thinks like coaching is and like when you're mm-hmm. supposed to be like yelling and like, you know, cheering people on all that, just like the entire idiomatic field of baseball is completely, utterly foreign to everybody there, even though the game is more or less the same game. And this idea of this kind of like you know, that this cultural practice like has this whole language with it that doesn't really translate onto Mars. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or and partly because the Martian population is so international. Like it's yeah. It's really people who have and it's funny too, because um obviously if it's an international population on Mars, you would expect soccer or as the rest of the world calls it football to be (laughs) the thing. But maybe maybe football or soccer. Um Would that be even more difficult on Mars because of just the dimensions of like how big would the so- would the soccer pitch need to be yeah, exactly. in order to play a real game of soccer on Mars? Exactly. Like the ball would probably be put into orbit somehow or something. I mean, it does seem like from what we learned, you know, like with like Nergal and like everybody else on Mars who just like loves running incredibly long distances that like soccer would be yeah. a good game because it is like such yeah. a running intensive game. Yeah. It would be worth finding out too, because Green Mars was written, you know, well before the Martian trilogy was written. So it'd be worth knowing if this story was written contemporaneously with Green Mars or after the Martian trilogy came out. And one of the other things that makes me think about that question is, okay, not only like the soccer versus baseball question, because Maybe, you know, Stan wasn't, was less more interested in writing about baseball at the time, right? But yeah. maybe also because in Green Mars um, and the and the earlier, the things that were written before the Martian trilogy, we, I don't think we really see the, the physiological differences of native born Martians born out in those stories like we do here, like that seems to be something that was introduced or thought through more in the actual Martian trilogy than it was in like the early nineties than it was in the mid eighties. And unless I'm mistaken, because I think in green Mars, we don't find people who are like two meters tall. Right. I mean, I think that they are taller than Arthur, but I don't, we don't get a ton about that. I mean, and there's a way in which maybe that kind of disappears in a sort of idea that just, um, 
the Martians are, you know, are experienced at doing this kind of climbing and Arthur, the earth man is not right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, here's a moment that I really liked on two fifty seven. Um, uh, uh, the the crowd was loving it. Gregor's face was less red. He was standing straighter in the box. He still refused to look anywhere but at my glove, but his look of grim terror had shifted to one of ferocious concentration. He may have been skinny, but he was tall. Out there on the mound, he began to look pretty damn formidable. So we climbed back up into the winner's bracket, then into a semifinal. Crowds of people were coming up to Gregor between games to get him to sign their baseballs. Mostly he looked dazed, but at one point I saw him glance up at his co-op family in the stands and wave at them with a brief smile. How's your how's your arm holding out? I asked him. What do you mean? He said. <laughs> <laughs> I just found that hilarious. I think because I think it's partly like he just like idiomatically it doesn't make sense to him. How's your arm holding out? But also just yeah, this total right. refusal to engage. <laughs> I I took it too as like uh, just. Uh, I took it to as like his youth. Like he's like, what are you talking about? I'm young. I can do this all day long. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and, and that <laughs> I probably think that because I went to the gym the other day and was just surrounded by like 18 year olds who looked like they could like, you know, power a space station just by, you know, <laughs> just by their grins, by their glowing skin. Um, I like, let's see. So yeah, this is, it was great too. Cause the coaching thing is kind of this recurring thing. I don't want to coach. I don't want to tell anybody what to do, but then he sort of naturally falls into a kind of coaching role. And you mentioned just before that, like, it's a kind of a different situation on Mars because, you know, none these people all love what they're doing, but they also don't know what they're doing. So any kind of expertise would probably be, or like any kind of expertise or knowledge would be sort of welcome, but he has this like resistant attitude toward sort of hierarchies or something like that. Um, and at one point he finally says, okay, you're going to pitch and I'm going to catch. He's like, I thought you weren't going to coach. He's like, I'm not coaching. I'm catching. So he's like a little <laughs> trick that he can tell himself. I also, one of the things I was thinking about in this story, partly because the, this story is followed by Salt and Fresh, which is a little red people story. Um, you know, I think we talked a bit, um, probably several times when we were talking about the trilogy uh, about, you know, what to make of the prologues that have the little red people um, in them and uh, like folktale and the presence of these sort of like American uh, quasi mythological figures, Paul Bunyan or whatever. Um, and mm-hmm. I think about this, this baseball story is also, we get this very, you know, we're thinking about this very culturally specific. I mean, of course, baseball is like culturally broad in certain kinds of ways, but it has this strong association with Americanness. Um, Right. This very culturally specific practice that both is and isn't taking on a totally new form on Mars. I mean, where the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the sort of like uh, the atmospherics, the physics, whatever it is, are like sufficiently different that baseball can't really be the same thing. And also, like the idea of, you know, national pastime, which I feel like is still Yeah. Baseball, baseball gets invented, you know, you know, US, US anyway. 
you know, that, that, that idea is about Star Trek Mars, where there's no such thing as nation. Uh, um, but so it's but interesting, interesting about this, about this like, 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 you know, you know, it's one of these one of these moments of thinking about like why do do you know, forms of like, of like, like, like pursuits matter in these stories and in these novels, and there's all sorts of thinking about like cultural organization and like why you do a particular thing. Why, why, why a particular way of spending your time is satisfying or exciting or like speaks speaks to people and uh, you know there's some sense of there's I, I think something I like about the story is it wears very you know it could easily be a story in which we get some kind of idea that like you know sport is a universal or something like that but there's yes. also some generalized sense of like okay arthur's arthur's feeling about baseball you know his relationship it, it for him it's part of a structure of feeling that it is not part of for the martians and yet they can play mm-hmm. it together despite the despite that kind of difference right despite the way in which it's encoded and then actually physically like completely different yeah i was thinking about <clears throat> i was thinking about that too um in in that sense that they are kind of they all you know they're they're united by the common language of baseball where they can't actually sort of it's hard to communicate uh through speech in a lot of ways with especially with gregor who speaks a language he doesn't even know which language it is um but just through like the kind of common physical activity that they're all pursuing um they can form a, you know, a, a, a bond, um, uh, which seems like, yeah, really important, uh, to be able to do in, in like kind of, um, regular intervals or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from or what language you speak, if you can all play the same sport and be, um, and have a good time doing it regardless of skill level, even, um, then that that speaks to like a you know a social possibility that's utopian. Yeah, right. A, a working working together, you know. Yeah, and a, yeah. and pleasure and pleasure also for sure. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so just a wonderful, delightful story about baseball that made me very nostalgic for moments that I got to that I when I still played softball. And, you know, the couple of like home runs and really good catches that I made too. I was <laughs> yeah. delighted in re- reliving those from my uh, youth, my lost days. Um, so yeah, some Salt and Fresh is a Little Med Red Men uh, Archaea um, chapter, which I found really interesting. And it is that kind of, it is it is that like mythical thing, but it also has a lot of like, I mean, there's like a quasi-scientific aspect to it, or there's some kind of scientific aspect mm. to it. It's not pure mm-hmm. mythology. It's got a mix of like, you know, the Buddhism plus the the analysis of the salts and and things like that. Um, there's one moment when it's kind of hard. It's interesting to sort of navigate. I was because I was just reading some. Um, uh, uh, Nick Estes uh, article. Nick mm-hmm. Estes is like an indigenous um, sort of philosopher, activist, uh, scholar, right? Yeah. And so I was reading this in the context of that and trying to think about what the active sort of metaphor here is between the human, like this hierarchy of like 
humans, little red men and Archaea, and then thinking about it as a kind of system um, and where kind of indigeneity mm-hmm. like lands here in relation to colonialism and sort of, you know, Western scientific ideology and then a kind of, um, you know, larger, you know, ecological consciousness or something like that. And so I was trying, sort of trying to figure out how, I don't know, that metaphor, the metaphor that's like laid out here sort of maps onto or enlightens those relationships. Yeah. I, th- I don't have a good answer. No, no, no. I think that's a really interesting, um, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I do think that the, at least, um, at least in this book, although I think this is true in the trilogy too, like part of what the, the little red people's stories do is to give you a kind of, uh, they produce a different way of thinking about what the, what the web of life is, right. Of thinking about that, like not just as a metaphor, but, but actually as a kind of, um, um, a set of entanglements that are, you know, Mm -hmm. part part and parcel of what living is, is the entanglement with other living things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that, that I think becomes quite, I, you know, like I don't, it, it doesn't seem, they don't seem to me either in this story or in the previous little red people story in this volume or in the trilogy um, to work simply allegorically, although they are definitely right. used to like, um, they're used to like uh, kind of call up like a whole mm-hmm. bunch of questions, like the kinds of questions that you were asking about settler colonialism, about um, invasion, right? Um, mm. uh, uh, about the unseen um, and the kind of like the deliberately unseen about like old, old stories, old history, what gets, what gets suppressed in order to make something new. Um you know, and, and I, I feel like those things don't work themselves out, I don't think, into like a kind of a clear sort of allegory. And, and in some ways, I feel like their function is to kind of, um, you know, tweak in various kinds of ways our, our desire to have them be allegorical. In other words, to like yeah. give, us, give us a kind of like symbolic rendering of, of something. Um, right. The, map, the mapping is like all, never not even close to being perfect. Like it's, right, right. it's not even worth calling it an imperfect mapping. It's just this, you know, imaginary topography, um, that, that gives us a, a very much other, um, one, you know, one that's completely other to our own sort of everything that's wrapped up in our own political history and stuff like that. And I was thinking with this one that, I mean, uh, so we both get the idea that the little red people are caught between the archaea who they've like come to some sort of understanding with. So they're not exploiting mm-hmm. them anymore, not treating them like beasts of the field anymore. Um, but at this, but at the same time, like the archaea aren't necessarily buying into the version of the understanding they've produced. So the little red people are caught between the archaea and the human beings who are just right. in, in the usual human way, blissfully ignorant of everything other than, you know, their own arguments and their own 
you know, their own sorts of ideas about like what terraforming is or what an environment is or what a planet is. And, right. Which, and that in itself, I think is, is interesting, you know, to try to like uh, give a kind of presence to um, the stuff that sort of falls out of the, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't appear on stage when we stage like a terraforming debate or something like that. Um, uh-huh. But the other thing I think is really interesting is that idea that the little red people sort of share a mind and that while they sometimes argue with each other and they have this on a 262, I mean, of course, mm-hmm. the kind of thing that I uh, like a lot. Um, so the little red people were caught in the middle as moderates so often are, I mean, and like here, yeah. like, what, what makes them moderates? That's a fascinating idea. Uh, that, that, I underline that word. And it's just like a big question mark to me is like, what, like, it's so weird to think of that as a, even on the spectrum of moderate versus like radical versus conservative or something right, like that. Right. I mean, it's almost more like, it's almost like literally that they have to moderate between these two demands right? because they're, they feel caught in the middle. Yeah, um, exactly. That is, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. And I thought like, this is actually a very helpful thing to think about how a position becomes a position because of it, because of being where it is, right. As opposed to adhering to like a particular kind of idea about how things should be. Um, instead, yeah. right. They're just, they're, and, and actually like in the picture we have of this, they're, they're sort of like, they're just literally in between the humans and the archaea. Right. It's interesting too. Yeah. It's like really interesting because this is like illuminating it for mm-hmm. me because it's not like a centrist position, like what right. we would call a centrist position. Like, like they are, you know, like, or, or being a moderate Democrat or a moderate conservative, whatever the hell that yeah. would mean, right? <laughs> Because it, it literally puts the entire human sphere on one side and then the entire natural sphere on another side and you and then moderating between those two demands rather than thinking that the political is even is even a spectrum worth thinking about in a certain way when you're confronted with the demands of nature um, and it's like continued viability. And of course, like, you know, the, the solution that they come up with, which is, which is basically, uh, they're, they decide to convince the Archaea that they might as well just become like, you know, uh, like a mind control virus or something like that. Right. I mean, it is like, uh, that doesn't, uh, is not describable as moderate on (laughs) political terms. Well, it's funny because it's both, I've been thinking, I've been, I was rereading for my own weird reasons, um, uh, ideology and the ideological, whatever, Althusser's ideology essay. And the other thing that I was listening to this weekend was some interviews about a new book coming out about Charles Manson. So (laughs) the like the line between brainwashing and, and like uh, it, total complete ideological like reversal or uh, or uh, alteration um <laughs> just i made i made that i just made that connection right yeah, now so yeah. thank you for that well no I, I mean i think that that's like so in that paragraph that i was reading i just like i love every aspect of this um oh sorry yeah keep oh, going. No, no 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 this is this is uh, this is great because i think this is actually i mean you know uh, yeah this is totally connected to like 
uh, what's the difference between like um, coming into a new ideology and like uh, I don't know MK Ultra or whatever. Yes, uh, just to say it in a I mean. I'm kind of joking there, but um, so uh, so the little red. No, I think it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> exactly, I just want to talk more about uh, MK Ultra on the show. So the little red people were caught in the middle, as moderates so often are. We need a lot more compassion to appear very quickly. They said to each other on all levels of the ecosphere, which is already like okay, that's an awesome idea, right? Like, what is that? I mean, mm-hmm. I do think some of that does seem to be a sort of um, uh, a Buddhist idea about like what what different living things have in, in common, you know, suffering and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, but just that idea that like um, something that we think of as a property, a special property of special kinds of humans needs to be able to come into being through um, every, every, you know, through all the relations in the web of life. Um, mm-hmm. But though they were telepathic and now united by a single spirit of Bodhisattva grace, they found themselves divided on the question of policy in the face of this crisis. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Some thought they should focus on the Archaea, others on the humans, some on both, others on neither. More compassion? Sure, but how? Um, which I just, so I one of the things that I do think that the Little Red People do is they produce a... Um, playful and you know completely weirdo way of thinking about collectivity and that mm-hmm. idea that like um you know the idea of you know not only being telepathic which presumably means like a kind of instantaneous and total ability to communicate with each other you know it presumes a yeah. sort of like understanding and a sh- you know presumes a kind of shared shared mental life right but then mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. that that is all also because they, you know, they are the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that's also caught up in, in a sort of, um, you know, grace or some other sort of, you know, large scale transcendent way of being. And yet, of course, they disagree with each other, despite that shared mindedness. They argue, they take up multiple different kinds of positions, um, just as we're always seeing humans doing. So I, I think that, mm-hmm. that to me, I, I like the idea that this, you know, as as so often um, in the Mars trilogy and in these stories that we're getting to think both about um, collectivity as a matter of a kind of um, both mental and sort of like felt, uh, both a, a mental state and a felt state, you know, something mm-hmm. experienced, something that has something to do with experience, but also um, is a kind of inherent capacity. Um, and also that like being able to be collective doesn't mean that there aren't going to be arguments about how to make things happen or how, how to engage on a large scale with other others who you don't totally understand. And, you know, and here the solution becomes like, well, we don't really get why the humans don't seem to be working on compassionate terms in the way that we'd like so let's basically just mm-hmm. find a way to invade their brains that also gives the arcade mm-hmm. something to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I like the, another one thing I like too about this story is that because it's this, these little red men and the Archaea and that's this, it's not only a different spatial scale, but it's a different time scale too, it seems like. And that's partly because these, 
creatures exist in the realm of pure thought, basically. I mean, they're just thought experiments and they're a place where theory can play itself out. So that like on the first page of Salt and Fresh, um, when they, they have come to this, um, you know, just as the Dalai Lama would not eat cows on earth, the little red people should not eat Archaea on Mars. This created an instantaneous famine situation for the little <laughs> people. So that it's almost as if, you know, just by thinking it, it becomes true. And then it becomes, you know, it becomes a fact so that um, it's, you know, it's instantaneous. It, 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 it travels at the speed of thought yeah, in a yeah. way like, um, and then because it, because it is just a thought experiment and it, everything is like sort of immediately theorized all the way straight down to its, you know, final enactment also because they are a, a collectivity and a, and a collective consciousness. Um, and then that way the, ex then the experiment, um, where they're going to basically <laughs> build, boats for the Archaea that are like ocean liners, but they're the size of salt molecules that can also sort of happen instantaneously and enter the bloodstream of humans. So that by the end, um, when like, you know, all these enormous processes are going on of like the, you know, saltification and, um, uh, a hydro hydrologization, whatever of Mars is happening. Um, a fair number of the few new streams fell off cliffs right into the sea. In these places, it looked like someone was pouring red paint into a clear, pristine pond where it spread out on rings and dabs of foam. That looks awful, the humans said to each other, though they didn't know the half of it. <laughs> then they would take a swim in the ocean nearby and get out and eat their lunches and on their way home feel funny and resolve to be nicer. To people that week. <laughs> uh, Which I feel like is what happens when you take a swim, by the yeah, way. Exactly. is like It's just very regenerative and like relaxing to just, you know, all those positive negative ions or whatever it is. Um, oh yeah. It's, exa that, it's exactly that right. It's like that particular pleasure of swimming, particularly like in the, in a body of water, as opposed to a pool that kind of happens in a pool yeah. too, but where you're also, you're immersed in the water and there's a very particular form of tiredness and pleasure you get afterwards. It's really different from if you're yeah. running or playing other kinds of games or whatever. Definitely. Yeah. And I thought too about this, yeah. this whole sort of scheme that they have of, you know, the Archaea. So up uh, on 264, the um, Archaea would see it as the freedom of, of the surface. Little people would uh, see it as drug therapy. Humans would see it in a deliberate, deliberate mutation of their values. If no one ever suspected otherwise, where was the harm? Why not let them think so? Right. <laughs> I thought about this in relation to like things like architecture and city planning mm -hmm. where like the built environment, like not everybody who enters, most people who enter any built environment don't think about or realize, you know, the psychological and social effect it's having on them. But, um, you know, you, you know, consciously designing architectural spaces with the idea of producing certain publics and certain social interactions um, is, you know, um, something important and utopian, um, uh, and that, that has these like real world, like lived effects. So I kind of was thinking about it in those terms as well. Yeah. And we get that, that idea is also, so, you know, humans would see it as a deliberate mutation in their values. So like, once again, humans will take it right. that like, well, we should take credit for this. And this is because yeah. like, 
you know, here we, you know, we're learning these things or, you know, now that we live on Mars, we're different in these ways and we have different kinds of values. So mm. we also get this whole sort of, you know, revisionist from the point of view of the, the little red people, we get this revisionist account of what the place of agency or intention mm-hmm. is in political history and political yeah. life, right? Um, yeah, that's like a perfect way of describing how ideology, how you would have to, you know, make ideological changes is through not through like ideas, but through like lived experience that then, you know, us stupid humans can give ourselves credit for because <laughs> oh, it's not just that I'm, it's not that I'm living differently and have a different set of material practices, but that I just have better ideas and because I'm just a better kind of person than than uh, people were in the past or people are in other places, right? Yeah, exactly. One, I was also thinking in this in this section, just I'm going to just like leap ahead, but we don't need to actually leap ahead. But in, in Charlotte Dorzebrevia's notes on the Constitution, somewhere toward the end there, she quotes um, Edmund Burke, hilariously, right. enough, you know, society is a partnership between the living, the dead and those yet to be born. Um, and like, you know, leaving aside for the moment, the question of like, why she quotes Burke, or whether that is a good way of thinking about the kind of constitution that they put together on Mars. Like this is a, this is a hilarious, like, um, revision of that because here, whatever mm-hmm. society and not just society, but, you know, planetary life on Mars Mm. is a partnership between, you know, the Archaea, the little red people and the, and the human beings. Yeah. Only the human beings don't think that they're in partnership. You know, the human beings think that they've done it themselves in relation to whatever set of ideals that they, you know, want to carry out. Uh, yeah. Whereas instead here we see that like, that's, that's not the story at all, but, but this, but like, uh, you know, um, uh, and yet this is still this kind of like crazy, like spatial temporal, partnership right i was gonna say another thing that is interesting about this story in the i was thinking about the hiking fossil canyon the way in which in that story the characters long for there to be life on mars life that's proper to mars that's not them and our Mm -hmm. character like wrestles with like she is a martian and yet she wishes that there was like life in some other form something like that um and I was thinking about the way in which, like, the little red people are this are also this kind of like fantasy of Mars itself being alive and being able to play mm-hmm. an active role and being able to not just like push back on what humans do to it, but actually manipulate what humans do to it. Right. Um. And you know, like, we might well think that we also are creatures of our environmental life. And yet we like obviously live so much in the grip of our kind of, um, you know, uh, variously enabled by capitalism fantasies about our power and our dominion, you know, that like Uh uh, we're rapidly in the process of like uh, whatever, destroying that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh But it's a kind of an interesting feature to the idea of the little red people is like making Mars alive in this kind of like fabular way. Yeah. I, I was going to say something different. Um, because just our conversation is making me think of the little red people as in relation to the kind of, you know, Robinson's investment in <clears throat> scientists and technocrats mm. kind of producing solutions that, you know, don't have to be 
worked out in the in what what we think of as the political sphere, um, but that are just sort of like logical and science based and can be enacted, uh, you know, behind the scenes and then produce different results so that our faith is put into these, you know, scientists, like knowers, basically, uh, who then can like, you know, are, are because they know, because they're between things, because they see things objectively can be trusted somehow to produce, you know, um, reliable results. Um, which I think is something that was an interesting way. I wasn't thinking about that uh, before we, we were, we were, we started talking, but it's an interesting way of sort of mythologizing the, the almost fetishized scientist figure in Robinson's oeuvre and then moving forward to like the nuts and bolts constitution of Mars thing, which seems, which is like, I think it's, an awesome document. I think looking at constitution of Mars and the work notes together, like as one um, text rather than two is like really helpful. Um, But um, yeah, I'm I'm curious to find out where our conversation goes in like juxtaposing this kind of fable with like the kind of, you know, quote unquote, actual document of the constitution. Yeah. I think that that's really interesting. I mean, I think I think of, the like the scientist figures i mean maybe you know maybe i'll just like qualify this to like um uh thinking about somebody like sax right in a mm-hmm, who, right. who i think actually since one of our uh one of our images of sax is the lab coat filled with rats you know there's a way mm-hmm. that, I mean, he <laughs> he has like the multiplicity of little of little brains um that, yeah. that kind of might make you think about the little red people. I think that's a really nice kind of uh-huh. parallel there. Yeah. Um, but it does seem yeah. to me that the, you know, that, that while Sachs makes a great deal happen by acting on his own, I'm not, sh- you know, my feeling is that like that, um, uh, it's not so much that that is a that's because like he has the absolute right way to do things or something like that or right. like, what yeah. he does is even the correct thing to have done, um, right. but it is like a kind of a movement in a political and historical dialectic, and that and I think it is right to think that like why does the Constitution come in? I mean, one of the points you know in the Mars trilogy and that that Charlotte Dorset Brevia's notes also make is that a lot of the things that have to happen in the constitution have to happen because of the, you know, um, uh, you know, the uh, extraordinary tension and the split between the, the mm-hmm. greens and the reds. Right. Right. I mean, the political reality. Yeah, exactly. And that, and of course, like, you know, part of why that, you know, that the sort of like intensity of that um, struggle that, and, and the kind of um, the antipathy that those groups end up having toward each other, like part of why that happens is because, in fact, the process of greening Mars was done by by fiat, you know, was done because right. it was possible. Right. And so the Constitution then, I think, I think in this, you know, version that we see of it here and then also in the way that the, the notes like account for it becomes, um, uh, 
you know, it is a document of negotiation, right? And and of mm-hmm. and of figuring out how to take a situation that has become, if not completely untenable, is certainly like verging on the untenable. And in terms of like, you know, living life is un, is in fact untenable. Um, right. The Constitution becomes the place in which that can be worked out, and it, in that way, I would say like the kind of like. There's a way in which the the thought here is 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 about a sort of a belief in in the political in the political as a right. living and lived process, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that the I think um, what I was saying about so like I think it's a I from what I understand it's a common criticism of not mm-hmm. just Robinson's science fiction but a lot of science fiction that it is reliant upon scientists as heroes and scientists and like technocratic solutions or whatever. And I think that that's probably a criticism that we want to keep in mind as we read through these things, because like it has a certain validity and, and, but also it falls down in places that you've just, um, described like it, 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 there's a tension there that, um, whatever it's worth thinking about, but then also being like hypercritical of as well. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess that I don't, I tend to think that- Being like, skeptical of, I guess, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that that's true, that that is a thing that like, that is a certain kind of political critique of certain kinds of science fiction. And I can see how like Robinson gets lumped in there. But I, I, I think that that's, to me, that's quite wrong to, that's, that's a wrong yeah. reading of what he does, you know? I mean, and it's overly, sim- it's way overly simplistic, right? Because there's, after you actually read the text, there's so much more involved. And yeah, exactly. And I mean, and, and I think it's, yeah, exactly. I think it's wrong for multiple reasons. And, and I, I think you could just think a bit about why um, I think in so many of his novels, um, somebody who is an engineer is an important um it becomes an important character, you know, Nadia specifically mm-hmm. for the Mars books, a person who, um, you know, uh, is a kind of like active and capable mediator and who can mediate mm-hmm. between different kinds of demands, you know, like between like certain kinds of scientific ideas and also like the demands of living life, but who also is not caught up in the sort of like, you know, that kind of potential ego drive of, um, pure, pure science that says if, you know, right. if I can do it, I, I, sh- I get to, or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting. Like as soon as you said engineer, I thought of like John Galt and like Ayn Rand. Right. And in so many ways, you know, th- that's, I mean, we can talk all day about how shitty Ayn Rand is, but, um, you know, he's, a, he's an architect, right? Well, yeah, but they're all, but is he an architect or an industrialist or like, a? I think she, she's all about scientists and engineers who are just like ethereally brilliant, yes, or like, exactly. like Elon Musk, yeah. like yeah, Elon exactly. Musk, right? Elon Musk, but and, who is not in fact but like, a scientist or an engineer, right? But just, not no, he's just a moron. Yeah. Like, uh, he's just an asshole with a lot of money, but, um, but, but, but. That's my, that's basically my point, right? Is that Robinson's engineers are actually engineers are like real, like way closer to what real people actually are like. Whereas Anne Rand is just full of, you know, bullshit thought experiments that have no relationship to like 
anything anybody who's ever actually lived anyway right and and of um, course which are not experiments at all because the outcome is predetermined the outcome is you know, <laughs> the capitalist individual is like the highest form of you know whatever human life or whatever what are the yeah. is those books are about um, I've I've never read them. I'm never going to read them. Um, I have I have read the and, Fountainhead when I was like 16, and I remember thinking I cannot understand what anyone sees in this book. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, um, I everything I've ever heard about any of her novels is just like I can't. Why do why do like 15 year old boys become enamored of this? Nonsense. Well, 15 year old boys. That's the perfect, uh, it's like the perfect mental state to be drawn into particular yeah. ideological poison or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Not uh, that there's anything wrong anyway, with 15 year old read- boys, by the way. <laughs> mm, yeah, right. Nothing, nothing wrong, with, wrong them. with them. Um, the Constitution of Mars. Um, I love that the Constitution. So this is a great, like, document and it's super fun to dig into and read. I like that the Duma is um, that it's like um, uh, government by jury duty, by lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, I dig that. Um, and, and then that the, the Senate is a, is an elected body th- where the, the, there's a representational sort of, you know, dilemma to be worked out with like how big the population would be, you know, any settlement of 500 people. And then it's amended in amendment 22 to Mm 3000 people. So there's still this kind of like representational system. Um, And it's still this like three way division of, uh, of government, the, the, on the model of the American constitution, but there's further divisions within it. And, um, the emphasis in the executive specifically of, you know, depersonalizing the executive, um, I, you know, I think they're for obvious, uh, contemporary, uh, reasons, this is a really good idea, (laughs) really good idea. I know it's, it is, Um, it is interesting to think about. I mean, there are a lot of things here that are, you know, um, while, uh, uh, you know, while it seems like this is probably a good time not just to think about like reformist measures, but actually like a wholesale overthrowing of things as they are, it is also right. worth I think, abolish the, abolish the presidency. Abolish the presidency. Yes, exactly. Um, for sure, abolish the presidency, the Supreme Court, the Senate. Um, but in any case, but <laughs> like uh, I just like living through like the hell of the part of the fucking election cycle that we're in right now. Like the idea of depersonalizing the executive, like having that not be about like so much of what we are constantly hearing. And like, I, you know, whatever, I spend relatively little time like paying attention to news media, but so much of it is about like, I mean, just the whole, the whole conversation that is happening now about electability, right? What makes a person electable? Like, uh, you know, wow, it would be great to just eliminate that fucking conversation, you know? It, it, the, I, I spent where, you know, contrary to you, I spend almost all my time just fucking (laughs) 
scrolling through Twitter and like going back to the same stupid website and it's awful and I hate it and I'm really <laughs> fed up with it, but I'm addicted to it. I can't stop. Hopefully I will figure out a way soon. It is but, the um, little red, the little red people. That's also, we could talk about the it's in, fucking infecting you. Yeah. It is. It's true. And they're all on Twitter. They all have like little blue check, blue check marks next to their names. But like it, you know, it, it comes home to roost with this like argument between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and their supporters. And so clearly Bernie Sanders has the best policies and the longest, you know, um, record of doing things and, and standing up for like, you know, really good ideas and policies, but because he's him and then his supporters are who they are, there's this, you know, I was reading like on Twitter today where a bunch of people are like, because Bernie's supporters on Twitter are such assholes, I don't want to support Bernie. And it's like, First of all, who are these people on Twitter? Like they're just, it's just text on a screen. Yeah, like yeah. you, they're not people. <clears throat> they're not people. Like they could be anybody anywhere. And second of all, what kind of a stupid way to make your decisions is that? Like it, it's so frustrating. Um, when, it, and then also in fact, because so many of their policies are like identical or nearly identical or overlap in such significant ways. Like I do, th I personally do believe that Bernie w would be way better than Elizabeth Warren, but Elizabeth Warren would be light years beyond uh, light years better than like Joe Biden or even anybody else in the democratic field, let alone anybody else who calls themselves a Republican. So um it just, it's just such an obvious thing to like depersonalize the executive branch and, and get personality out of it. But that's only possible in the realm of like science fiction, where the entire media ecosphere isn't revolved around personality and, um, promotion and, um, Capitalism, essentially. I mean, right. you know, commodification of personality is what we're really, you know, what's, you know, what's at root of so much of all of these problems. I mean, and that, you know, and, Whatever. and yeah, and I think reading, like just thinking about the constitution um, and the notes, one of the things that, that it calls up is like, well, you can't, you know, you can't just solve one problem, right? So like, right. if it's going to be a really important way to change the nature of representative bodies, um, to have those to deep, not only like depersonalize, like the members of the executive, and, you know, like, so to move away from the idea of the president, um, but also to mm -hmm. deprofessionalize being a representative, right? Um, so that that happens by yes. lottery, um, or on a shorter term or whatever it may be, or both by lottery and shorter terms. Um, but, but of course those things can't happen. You can't just make those changes in the structure of representative government and be like, Oh, okay. Now we've, we've made the changes because the reason that it's possible to make these changes, um, is also because, um, 
you know, in the constitution of Mars, um, everyone has the right to the majority of the economic benefits of their own labor. Um, and everyone has the right, right to a minimum living wage for life. And everyone has the right to proper right. health care, including uh, the longevity treatments. And not only that, right. like there are no nation states and no one's allowed to set up an intermediate sized um uh, an intermediate size right. like organization like a nation state um you know so it's like the entire i mean and also um there's a set of agreement agreements about like what we should be caring for in the environment of the planet itself and like none of the you know, none yeah. of these pieces on their own is is transformative they all have to change together you know they they yeah. all have to change yeah. together and the and two that you didn't mention in like individual freedoms that I like um, choice of employment and meaningful part in the management of one's yes. work and like me- meaningful and choice of employment are actually like important terms there that you know are are terms of debate like what does it mean to be a, to have a meaningful part in the management of one's own work what does it mean to be able to choose your employment right. Um, can I do, can I do things that are just like, I'm going to do, you know, write my dissertation that only 10 people are going to read. And I, and that's my choice of employment and it's, and I have a mean, and I still deserve a meaningful or a minimum living wage for that work. Right. Does that count? Um, or would I have to do, do something else? Right. Um, and then, and yeah, so, and then the, the thing about, um, so yeah, I mean the, the, the just the terms of debate themselves are actually like shifted uh in in this constitution. And then the 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 kind of architecture that's already built up on Mars in terms of eliminating the possibility of nation states, right? You can't have these regional alliances, but part of what makes that possible to even imagine is the fact of towns and settlements, many of which are under domes. So it makes sense to say, okay, that's, you know, it, that's its own sort of thing um, that can't sort of ally. And so it, it, because those things, those types of things eliminate the possibility of something like sprawl, right? Yes. So like, I think, you know, Stan and I, we were talking in the interview about Orange County and, and this is the thing that, you know, you know, will blow your mind if you move from Orange County to the East Coast is that, you know, cities end. You, <laughs> there are boundaries to cities, whereas in Orange County, it's all one thing that never ever stops, and it's this gigantic sprawl of concrete. Um, and it makes no sense to actually divide up Garden Grove from Cypress, from Orange, from Westminster, because you don't even know where you are right, half the right. time, unless you're at a mall that's called the Orange Coast Mall <laughs> or the Westminster Mall. Like literally, those are the only things that have the name of the city on them, right? And I don't know that that seems to make uh, th- that that creates a you know just the the fact of like sort of the domed towns and the sparse settlements and the actual the need to actually respect the the ecological restrictions on what you can actually build and where you can actually live on Mars. Um, that comes into play here in a way that um, had just been ignored throughout the 20th century's development of places like um, California and other, and like Arizona, for instance, like places where just people shouldn't even 
technically right. be because there aren't any resources there, right? Um, and that's, I mean, and uh, that's also, you know, it also the in the semi-autonomous communities on Mars, like those communities grow up um, in part through um, having, you know, their seeds are in um, groups of people who share certain kinds of affinities. So you know, want to live yes. in a particular way, you know, whether that is more urban or more rural, who share political affinities, who share certain kinds of cultural affinities. I mean, and even though we know right. that there are big cities that are extremely diverse um, where all kinds of stuff is going on. And that might be, you know, like just as there are in our world, that's still the like dream of the the city. Um, you know, there are also all of these places that like hold to like, um, you know, hold to particular kinds of ethos about the relationship to other humans or to the land or whatever it may be. And that, and that's something that when you think about like, you know, uh, the sort of like, you know, what's this, what's the, the story of like, um, uh, you know, the ex expanding, you know, the United States, right. That story is about not only like the total dispossession, um, and destruction of the people who were there mm -hmm. before, but it's also the story of like people looking for work. Right. So you know, what mm -hmm. were you doing mm -hmm. going out to California while well, you were pursuing some kind of dream of a possible better life? And that dream is anchored in the idea of there being kinds of work available there. Right. So like, yeah. you know, when, when without like, you know, on Mars free of global capital, um, that's not what drive people can make decisions and live in ways that are not driven by, um, you know, the need to just uh, find that, like, you know, the need to sell their labor um, in order to be able to live, right? They can be driven by right. all kinds of other contentful um, ways of thinking about what mm. life is. But I also wonder, like, too, if, you know, what, you know, because part of what um, the, the way that people uh, agglomerate in America is based on like a common origin, place of origin, that itself was sort of uh, became a nation state in part because of a common language. And so like the, the, the poly polyphony of languages um, doesn't somehow just get like, that seems to be something that we'd want to think more deeply about in terms of like how people actually organize themselves on Mars, which is something that we saw in the Arthur Sternbeck brings a curveball to Mars story, because there's still this kind of not quite, I wouldn't, you know, the, the, the word I'll use ghettoization would be wrong probably, but there is this kind of like you know, Gregor uses, lives in a place where people speak his language. So in that way, you know, his affiliate, his affiliations are, you know, not limited, but circumscribed in a certain way. Like he's able to make new friends through baseball, which is good. Um, but at the same time, there is still this kind of holdover of, you know, limiting people's ability to relate because of language. And, and, and that would be worth like thinking more about right um i think in, in the original trilogy did, is some kind of universal translator invented or something yeah like that? and uh i mean in uh gregor in the arthur sternbach story has a translator um on okay him. and also they right. speak the lingua franca seems to be what arthur refers to as a version of english but it doesn't read exactly like oh, english yeah. to him but i think that that's a good i mean that's a yeah. good point because like that sort of 
you know, one of the things that I think we see in the Constitution and then definitely in the way that the the um, uh, Charlotte Dorset Brevia's notes work in Section 3.3.1 mm-hmm. or the commentary in 3.3.1, this provision attempts to chart the difficult course between local autonomy and global justice. It is the paradox of a free and tolerant society that in order for it to work, intolerance cannot be tolerated. The two injunctions, people can govern themselves and no one can oppress another person, must exist as a living contradiction or dynamic tension. And she returns to that point, the idea of of, um, intolerance can't be tolerated multiple times, Um, which I think is just a, you know, that's a really, I mean, there is a like, you know, classic liberal um, response to the idea of you know, this is like in the, in classical liberal terms, it's the tyranny of the majority, mm-hmm. right? That's what like John Mill calls it. The idea that people who, um, there have to be protections for people who occupy certain kinds of minoritarian positions or minoritarian ways of life. Um, but, and, and then that's something that like the kind of, uh, you know, the weird manipulations of, of representative democracy so-called are supposed to account for, um, and here it seems to be the case that like, at least the way that Charlotte's notes work is that this is just something that we have to pay attention to because this is like an, un- this is not a contradiction that we can just resolve. We can't resolve it through um, an article in the constitution mm-hmm. or through a particular legislative mm-hmm. practice that we have to be aware of it. And I think that really ties to what that, that ties to that point about like, well, what if people are preserving a way of life um, that in some ways seems to cut them off from, you mm-hmm. know, the larger doings of the world? Or what if people are preserving a way of life in which certain kinds of things go on in that way of life that that um, seem to be anathema to other people, right? right? And that's right. the kind of like, well, where where is where is the line? And 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 you know, the line of like not tolerating intolerance is actually a pretty complicated one. Right. You know, like right. intolerance is in some ways like a pretty vague um, conception of this. But I like that here that that is like, that's represented as like, this is an ongoing problem. It's not something you can create a rule about, right? And it's definitely not something that you can take care of by creating an elaborate representative structure that supposedly protects the rights of of the minority. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, coughing. And also meowing. Oh yeah, that's that was me. <laughs> no, no, it's Milton. Oh. He's Milton is very mad that the door of my study has been closed for such a long I time. I think my partner must be home because if she weren't, then the cats would be like pawing at the door of the office. So um, <laughs> because they can't be left alone. Uh, yeah, but no, the Constitution has a structure for debate, right? Like. It seems uh, yeah, like it's yeah. a really conscious, conscious, and taking that very seriously um, thing that that uh, it, it is a uh, it you know sets the terms around which the debate about how best to live collectively will be um, will 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 revolve right um, and yeah one of the really really important things is just the the idea so on. It's the section on 3.4.1, but on page 278, which is, so th- this is actually a section in the work notes that reflects on the kind of intersection 
and the kind of like systemic change involved that's required that like you change one thing, it requires a change in a different thing. It requires a change in a third, like the whole system has to be um, altered. So like, this is a section about the kind of courts that have to be created in order to resolve differences between the constitutional court and the um, uh, the reconciliation of the two courts, the, rec the, the, the constitutional court and the environmental court. And people kind of scoffed at this and they say, oh, well, you know, that the reconciliation court is going to be, you know, in charge of the whole government, at, at, you know, and they say, and Charlotte writes, yeah, that's sort of, that happens sometimes, but it's actually, I find it really interesting. And people say, well, Charlotte, you like that kind of thing. That's why. <laughs> and then she says, I would reply by pointing out how many people are like me nowadays and very much enjoy their work, which is no longer time that you give to others to earn the money to do what you want, but actually something you have chosen because you find it interesting if you are sensible, because you are fully involved in the results of the work and are recompensed for it in much the same ways and to the same degree as everyone else in the world with sufficiently with, with sufficiently at with, with sufficiency at least, and usually much more, this is the situation that the society based on this constitution has managed to achieve. That's what I find so interesting about it. So that the fact, uh, the fact is that like more people will be more invested in politics because they're actually more invested politically in their own work and their everyday lives. Um, right, right. Such an interesting right. I mean, this thing. I, yeah, I agree. I love that passage, partly because of the charmingness of her referring to herself. In right, it, yeah. But also, I mean, and because it does such, a, I think, such a, like, good kind of um, Kim Stanley Robinson thing, which is saying, like, oh, you you think that this is boring, yeah. but it's actually really interesting to learn how things yeah. work. Um, but also because of a point that, you know, we could just make over and over again, which is that, like, yeah, you know, something uh, something incredibly fundamental to the way that we live must change in order for us to change, you know, the entire superstructure in which we live our lives. And that thing that has to change is our relationship to our work, right? Um, which can no longer be the scene of exploitation. We can no longer live and we're not going to change anything, not truly change anything until we are no longer um, uh, having to exchange in the position of being forced to exchange our labor for a wage in order to survive. Yeah. Uh, a wage that allows us to do nothing more than get up and go back to work the next day. I mean, yeah, I mean, that like, that's like the bottom line. That's the bottom line. <laughs> that's what it is. I love it. Uh, and it's true. Well, and, and on the last page of it, um, the constitution was to my mind written to give people a sense that their management of their affairs was in no way natural or written in stone. Laws and governments have always been artificial inventions, practices, and habits. They, uh, they can change. They have, they have changed. They will change again. That being the case, there is no reason not to try to change them for the better. And that is what we did. What the result will be in the long run, no one can say, but I think it has a good beginning. Yeah. Um, yeah. To denaturalize, you know, everything, mm -hmm. everything and understand that it's all contingent and artificial. And because of those, because it's contingent and artificial, we have agency over those things. Right. Right. Yeah. We've made the world in cooperation with a lot of other systems and we get to figure out how to make it better. That's true. Um uh, this was great. The, there's, um, 
a reference to permaculture here, um, mm-hmm. which is cool, which is uh, like, I want to know like too, when I should look it up in the OED or whatever, when the term permaculture surfaced, because I feel like it's a term that's getting a lot of play these days. And it's a word I don't think I'd even, I had heard of before, you know, even a few months ago, maybe a couple of years ago or something. But um, clearly it was uh, in the air in around the year 1999, if not before. So Yeah. And I think, it, I think it's older than it that. Must I, mean, be. I think it goes back to the, I mean, I was going to say the seventies, but I guess I actually don't know, yeah. but people have been trying to do permaculture practices and arguing about um, how, how you actually, how you can do permaculture um, for, you know, a while. Right. Actually, there's a, <laughs> and that's really, that stuff is really interesting. There's a, I think I, I might've mentioned this before, but there's an account I follow on Twitter called build soil who he wants to like, he's part of a kind of there's he's in, really interested in the American chestnut tree. Um, have I talked about this mm. before? Uh, maybe. Yes. I think so. there's a, or we've talked about, there's it. a lot of different camps around American chestnuts and bringing them back. Um, they were, went, they're almost extinct because of a blight that struck them in the early 20th century. There's something called the American chestnut foundation, which is doing more like genetic engineering, like direct, um, alteration of the genome. And they, they say they have a blight resistant, um, tree that they want to actually just release into the wild, which would be probably maybe bad because they don't have any evidence of what that would mean for other systems. Um, but the guy on Twitter is just a guy with an MA in like ecological design. And he has these brilliant Twitter threads and he wants, he wants to do his own campaign of just planting a million trees and getting volunteers to do it, but they're not genetically engineered. They're kind of like a lot, a mix of sort of hybrid and, um, however you make them. I don't know how, how, I don't know how it works, but, um, he's very, it's all about permaculture because like, it's not just like reintroducing the tree, but it's going to be a communal source of food. Like you can do a ton of stuff with the chestnut, um, as a food source and a grain and a replacement for grain that could be, you know, sustainable permaculture and a, you know, um, free source essentially of, uh, an enormous amount of, um, nutrients, um, if they were just owned collectively rather than like privatized or whatever. So I don't know, that just made me think of that, but like these random, you know, not random, uh, radical, uh, solutions. It's almost like a sax, um, thing like, well, I'm just gonna, yeah, right, right. I'm just going to do Let's it. Plant the trees. Let's just plant the fucking trees. Uh, that reminds me that I just heard the other day that Chicago has lost something like 30 or 40% of its tree canopy in like less than a decade. That Um, is not surprising. No, presumably because of development. But I mean, when you, you know, uh, it's just like so alarming to think about that. Um, I, I, I think definitely because of development, but I also remember years ago when in the summer there were some just horrific thunderstorms that came through and like the amount of trees that had fallen down in the city. There was one at the university of Chicago campus that was there for like, you know, a hundred years and they were like completely uprooted. I remember after those storms walking around whatever neighborhood I was in, I think I was in Andersonville 
and there was at least one ginormous tree that had been uprooted and smashed a couple of cars, just annihilated the cars, right? But that was all over like Jackson Park, um, right, near the museum right. on of, the wooded island. On the wooded island, the Museum tree. of Science and Industry, there were tons of just enormous trees that were completely uprooted. Um, and I'm sure like the government just or like you know, the mayor's office just used that as an excuse to like destroy a bunch of other trees as well to make room for whatever the dumb shit they want to make room for. Well, yeah, I mean, we recently learned that, so they've been doing all this, like, um, uh, like uh, water pipe remediation all over the right. city, as I'm sure you were all ripping up the streets, right? Yeah. And, like, uh, they were ta- they've taken down a lot of trees in the process of doing that. And then, it, you know, recently it has come out that, like, other um, cities have found ways to uh, do the pipe necessary pipe remediation without taking the trees down. Yeah. And that was like something that like, you know, city government knew, but, you know, because it seemed like it might be like moderately more expensive, just didn't act on. So they just were like cutting trees down unnecessarily. It's very annoying. It's fucked up. Yeah, it's fucked up. Um, (laughs) Trees are cool. Trees are are better. Uh, We need to have those genetically engineered bamboo trees that we can live in. Um, like Hiroko made. Oh my God. Yes. Um, and if, and barring that, just like plant a shitload of fruit trees and, um, decommodify the food web. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Hey, our new apple tree gave us one beautiful apple you, in its first year of life. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. We, yep. so we, yep. Very exciting. our neighbors here in Maine. Okay. One thing about Maine is that in the, in next year's elections cycle maine has the australian ballot system so it it has multi what is it called um just runoff instant runoff i get instant runoff or multi-choice balloting so you pick first second and third um so that's how like the current congressman jared golden who's basically just a centrist dem um got elected he beat a republic he like ousted the republican who was there uh, before him. And, you know, he's, I, he's a Democrat at least, but that's how he, he's the first ever, what is it called? I knew it before, but he's the first ever, um, congressperson elected using that ballot method. So I'll get to participate in that next year. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. But here in Maine, our neighbors have a apple tree, which I guess is an apple tree. It's like a giant tree and it produces tons of little, 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 little tiny apples. I mean, they're not that little, um, but they're little, <laughs> they're not like pips. They're like apples, but they're, you know, we haven't tried to eat any of them cause they don't look very appetizing. Um, but what I do instead is I going back to, uh, the Arthur Sternbach, um, story is I just go out to the backyard and take my baseball bat and, and smash them, uh, across <laughs> across the yard. It's, it's a little bit fun because I get to swing a baseball bat, but it's also not very fun. Cause if I make really good contact, I get sprayed with apple juice. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's kind of a yep. sticky hobby. Um, <laughs> but at the very least there's just hundreds of them, like just laying around in the, on our, in our backyard. I don't even, you know, it, it's more of like a nuisance than anything else. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about if it's worth it to collect them to like make compost out of or something, but, um, I'm, 
I'm sure you can compost them. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm sort of trying to. Um, uh, it might be. A, it's probably a good idea. Uh, yeah. Or you know, just hit them with a bat. I've piled way. them up. There's there's a couple of apples in a few different piles in the backyard, and um, we'll see sort of what happens to them. But I think to properly do it, I should probably get some tubs and some newspapers and the leaves that are about to start falling and and really, um, you know, take some of my worms from my vermicompost bin and uh, transplant them into there and have fresh, yep. beautiful compost for next next season. That's right. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. Just like mom used to, <laughs> just like mom used to make. Just like mom used to make. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, anything else to say about the constitution? I think it's really worth reading both of these sort of together and um just thinking about how much better the world could be if we could like rewrite the constitution change. of America. And yeah, yeah change it. Yeah. yeah. But uh, okay. Next time, what do we want to do? Next time we're going to do, uh, Ooh, boy. Do you want to do up through the selected abstracts from the journey of areological studies? Yeah. So up through three page three twenty. Yes. That's what that I was sounds, Does that sound that good? sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds correct. So that would be Jackie on Zoe. What's interesting? Keeping the flame. It's re- yeah. it's really go ahead. Cool that just this collection is has these like four different. I guess it's about four different types of story. Like one follows characters that we're familiar with. One gives us kind of a sense of what life on Mars is like mm-hmm. in a more abstract sense. One is the fable thing, and one is the more technocratic like. Yeah, we're going to be reading extracts from a from a academic journal, <laughs> whereas before we were reading right, like right. the Constitution and and stuff like that. I think it's so cool and it's so well sort of divided um, in those. F- I don't know if it's for exactly four different sort of groupings, but um, whatever. They all seem to fit into these categories. But then they're also be so interesting to find out how he decided to order these in a kind of like, you know, like, uh, putting an album together, like what's the first one? How do, how do you follow that? Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. 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 It, I mean, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying this. Yeah. Um, thanks for listening. You can, oh, yeah, uh, email us at marooned on Mars podcast at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter at podcast on Mars, um, rate and review us on iTunes and thank you for doing that. You know, so, several people have rated and reviewed us. One per everyone's given us a five star review, but one person gave us four. And I just want to talk to this person. And I just <laughs> want to say, why so stingy? You know what I mean? Could it did it? Did they, did they, give, a, did they give a reason? I don't know. I can't. I, I, you know, I maybe they did. I'm sure there's a very good reason in their minds for why they would do such a yeah. thing. But does it really cost you anything to give us that fifth star? I mean, I got to say, Matt, if I was rating our podcast, I would give it five stars. You know what? I was going to say the exact same thing. I would give it five stars. For <laughs> uh, Matt, I, I'd also give you, I'd give you five stars too. Uh, well, Hillary, you know what? I give you five stars as well. 
Thanks. Five stars all around. Thanks. Five stars to our audience, except for the one person who gave us oh, four stars. Sure. That person gets four stars. <laughs> and I'll give you the fifth if you can give me a good description or good good explanation for why we don't deserve five. Um, that's it. See you next time. Thank you for listening. Even the person who gave us four Bye. stars, thank you for listening. Yeah, absolutely. And goodbye. Bye. Bye.